Well, good morning to those of you in the room this morning. Good morning to those of you watching online. We are so pumped that you are all making it out and making this thing happen. Thanks for sticking with us for these last, I don't know, seven months or so of doing this weird live stream thing and making it happen. Um, we are uh, excited for uh, just, I don't know, holidays, any sort of change, any sort of something. We're excited for a new series today. We're starting a brand new series. So if you're watching this uh, and this is the first time you stumbled across it because of a link of a friend or referral or whatever, uh, we're glad that you did. And it's a great day to jump in because uh, a brand new series today called My Next Right Step. It's going to be a series on autonomy. We're going to talk about autonomy for a few weeks. My plan is three weeks. Um, and autonomy is interesting. Um, because it has to do with like uh, uh, the control of self and it has to do with uh, like our, our ability to kind of make our own things and, and make things happen and have an agency in the world and choices and, and how we got to where we are and, and all of that. It seems to be a pretty hot topic. And, and it's interesting because in our day and age, um, we are presented with more opportunities for autonomy than perhaps ever before. I mean, social media has given us an ability to have a platform um, without any sort of proximity. I mean, prior to social media, the only people that you cared about impressing were the people who you worked with or lived around or the family at Thanksgiving or the extended family or whatever. And now it's like that whole platform has been extended to tons of people. Proximity is no longer a problem. Um, we are constantly managing our own autonomy in the observation of our, per- in our perception of the world, the reality, the algorithms, probably like, I don't know, 20 people or so. But um, it feels like a lot, um, and so we have autonomy there. Uh, we have the platform with that. We also, you know, have this uh, ideal of right now um, has been like this perfect time to have sort of autonomy. I remember when this thing first kind of went down. I think you got a phone call coming. I want to take that. It sounds like an emergency. Uh, uh, at the very beginning of this pandemic, right? Everybody's like, the first month it was all just like, ooh, this is crazy, like did you get toilet paper? I didn't get toilet paper, right? Um, and then in like month two, we started having the questions, like the Zoom calls kept coming and people were being like, so how you doing, right? And uh, at first, like, well, we're good, we're hunkered, we're, we're doing fine. And, uh, you know, it's been really, really good. Um, I've had a chance to sort of work on my business. Um, I've had a chance to kind of like work on our family, you know, like, it's been really great to like, connect with the kids. Like, they're not sick of me yet. That's what we said in month two. They're not sick of me yet. It's been really, really great. Um, And really, the most important thing is I've had a chance to work on myself during this time, which has been so healthy for me. And uh, I think that's because we thought it was going to be over soon. And so what we thought was, if I say I'm working on myself, and it's over in like a month, then when people see me and they notice there's not much change, you can be like, well, I only had two or three months to work on myself. Plus, I was working on my family and my kids, and Lord knows how much they need it. Um, but now that we've had seven or eight months that we've been working on ourselves, we live in this fear of disappointing people when we meet them again in public or, or whatever, to be like, I thought you said you were working on yourself. And you're like, yeah, I gave that up. I just started eating Doritos more, right? Or I don't know. Uh, it's like this pressure now to be like, well, what have you done sort of with yourself? And I'm just like, you know, well, I'm just surviving. You know what I'm doing? I'm, I'm here. I, I made it. And my kids are all alive. And uh, don't listen to any stories that they said about me or whatever. Um, but it's, it's interesting. We've, we've never had as much platform and, and the proximity is no longer an issue. And in terms of resources, 
both in terms of self-help books that are available to us, uh, people who we listen to, follow, whatever, telling us that we need to work on ourselves. We click these things. We watch these videos. We do these, read these books. We read these articles. We're all about it. Uh, and, we, and, we've, and who can complain about not having the time to work on me? If you haven't had the time to work on you in the last seven months, like, I don't know what you need. There's, there's nothing more than a global pandemic to kind of make that happen. And yet, in spite of this, in a world obsessed with self-care, self-help, self-promotion, we are quite possibly actually almost less certain of our identity and our purpose than we'd hoped. And the reason that I think I can say that with a sense of validity authority is you still see people still self-conscious about what is put out there. Like, I, I, I want this, but I also need the affirmation of other people. I say this, and what do you think? Do you think this is the right thing? And I, or I need the likes, or I need the shares, or I need the social whatever. I need affirmations in some, some sense. And the reason we need affirmations is because we're just not self-confident about our own personal autonomy in that way. Nietzsche wrote that about this a while ago, saying, we are unknown we-knowers of ourselves. We are unknowns. Ourselves are unknowns. In spite of us being knowledge sort of beings, we know nothing about ourselves. We can go through life knowing lots of things about lots of different areas, including whatever specialty you work in or whatever, and yet our own selves remain relative unknowns to us. And yet we were told as kids, right? Oh, the places you'll go. Oh, with cartoons and everything, guys. You got one at graduation, even though you're like, I'm a senior. I don't need this book. And your grandma got it for you anyways, didn't she? And you read it, and you're like, it's creative, it's cute. And it was inspiring. It was like, oh, the places I'll go. You can do whatever you want. You put your mind to it. You're going to make it happen. You can steer yourself in any direction you choose. You are on your own. And you know what you know, and you are the guy who will decide where to go. So inspiring, whatever. And now we find ourselves like with this blessing of autonomy, and yet we feel oftentimes a bit lost, unsure about where to go. We feel like this has been a gift that has gone largely unwrapped or or, or unopened and still wrapped. Um, We find ourselves a bit lost, and when we feel like we're lost, we hear these messages come across our Instagram feeds that says, no worries, all you have to do is focus on taking your next right step. You don't know where you're going? That's fine. Just take one step in the right direction, and you'll be great, which is great, it just comes with the caveat of, yes, but how do I know what is my right next step? That is a big word. That is a very important, meaning-laden word. How do I know what's right? C.S. Lewis wrote about next steps in progress in an era where progress in the 1940s was you know, technological progress. They're making atomic bombs. They're doing all these things that were previously unthought of, and they're like, dude, in 40 years, we're going to have floating cars, you guys. We don't, but Whatever. In the idea of progress, he wrote this, we all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place where we want to be. Our next right step would assume a general awareness of the destination to which we want to go. And if you've taken a wrong turn, then going forward doesn't get you any nearer. If you're on the wrong road, progress doesn't mean, or progress means doing an about turn, a U-turn, and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. It has to do with this idea of direction, and it's not just a next right step. What if the road that I'm on, what if I don't have the ability, like I, I, I embrace this idea of autonomy, but then I'm questioning autonomous for what? What am I trying to get to? Where am I trying to go? And it's a constant struggle, and it's a struggle that we even, not just as adults, that we inherit. Um, it's, an, it's something that we feed into our kids. I, we watched Frozen 2, like many of you at some point uh, during this quarantine, and in it, there's this 
this voice inside the head of one of the lead characters saying, listen to the voice within. And that's, I mean, it's frozen too. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, and it's not unique to that. We've, we've heard this kind of men, like mental image or this metaphor of listening to the, just being guided by within. You're, you're your own you. Like listen to your own voice in this and trust your gut. Go with your heart. Do what you want. We'll figure it out, that sort of thing. But then the question becomes, can that voice, rightfully so, can that voice be trusted? Like a a really good, I think, person who's kind of really dealing with this, not on a not on a aggressive uh, consumer's mindset, but somebody who genuinely cares about what their future holds and is genuinely concerned about their autonomy would go, can I really trust the voice in my head? Because a lot of times, I don't know, if I listen to the small voice in my head all the time, my life would probably be in pretty rough shape because my voice has a tendency to say, buy it, you should definitely buy it, do it, say it, post it, drink it, whatever, right? Like is listening to our little small voice that is our gut the best thing that we could ever possibly do? I mean, I would venture to say on a practical level, no. And the beauty of scripture is that we get kind of a picture of what this looks like played out for us uh, as well. And we're going to dive into that in a second. Um, But before we do, like listening to this small voice, just real practically speaking, what happens when we listen to this? Uh, to believe in oneself is to constrict one's narrow, and narrow one's world and one's perspective. And when we listen to ourselves and we operate firmly out of the autonomous level of listening to our own, own voice and moving forward, two things typically take place. One, we tend to find ourselves in competition with other people. Um, other people become forces of com- competition for us. We can't both be girl bosses, right? I'm like, I'm clearly the one that's the boss here. And, um, uh, or we tend to dehumanize other people. Um, when we listen and, and let that be the force, the full force of what we try and do, it leads to competition with other people, and it leads to dehumanization. I, um, others exist for our pleasure. We, we step on the right things. We do this. We cancel those relationships because it doesn't work for me anymore, and my heart is telling me to go this direction, never mind what I promised to you or said to you or did whatever. Um, and so dehumanization is at play. So it's, I would say it's not just ignorant to listen to our voice. It can also be dangerous. And again, this is illustrating scripture. We're going to look at a passage today, and we're going to do it in a unique way, because I think a lot of times um, when you show up at East Lake and I talk, I'll, I'll try and pull like a couple of verses out of something, provide enough context around why Paul said that, or James said that, or who said that. Uh, and we don't go through a lot. And whatever I go through is usually typically on the screen. Today, there's so much um, that, uh, that we're going to go through in, in three chapters at the end of a book in the Old Testament called Judges. Um, that some of the phrases, some of the verses are going to be on the screen, but then some of them are just going to be, you're going to just going to have to trust me. I, I, and that's not, and I don't want, I don't want to put that in, put that out there. Cause that sounds like very much, oh yeah, the church has been notorious for just trust me. It's good. Right. Um, so instead what I've done to kind of get away from that is, um, on the notes page, if you are on the app and you can go out there to the notes or scroll down on your screen, if you're watching this online, um, you can find Judges 19. I put the, I put a link to it in the, the whole, all three chapters so that you can call me on it, um, in case I, I read it wrong, but I'm going to be reading from the NIV version of it, if that makes a difference to you in that way. But quick story, uh, a quick, um, overview of the book of Judges. Um, during this time in uh, Israel's history, and a lot of times the Old Testament is primarily about the history of a people group. Okay, what you need to know is 
Um, the New Testament is a lot about the history of the church and how they dealt with the resurrection and the teachings of Jesus. Uh, and the Old Testament is primarily about a specific nation, um, about Abraham being called out of uh, where he was from, Ur, and into this kind of unknowns and this developing of a new nation, their entry into, ex- into uh, Egypt and the exodus out of there and into the promised land and their kind of developments as a nation. It's very nation-centric, whereas um, the New Testament is very church-centric and kind of basically opens up to the world-centric. Um, but in this Old Testament sort of scenario, one of the books that they captured for us is part of the, uh, the, the section of history. So um, historically, this is what they kind of, as a people group, remember about what they did and where they went. For a while, uh, as they um, I- immigrated out of Egypt and into a promised land, they operated without any sort of king. They came from a scenario where there was a dictatorship with Pharaoh. They saw what happens when you put one person in power. Um, and so, and they said, we're not going to do that. We, we will have no king. We will operate a little bit differently. They operated on what they tried to operate as a theocracy. We only have one king and his name is God. Other than that, we kind of do our own thing and we are autonomous on our own. And it would highlight kind of the struggles about doing things without any sort of point leadership. If you've ever tried to work for a company without anybody who's in charge, it sounds good in paper, it doesn't work out great in actuality and praxis. Um, same thing goes for a nation in this way. Um, and they operate sort of as a commonwealth uh, of different sort of communities. We started our country as the 13 commonwealth states or whatever. They started with 12, they would call them 12 tribes of Israel. They were assigned an allotment of land. They lived and they did their own thing. There was a continuity between each other, but then also very much differences in how they kind of did their own thing. Um, as it would happen, conflict would come up, things would arise, and this history, the, the story behind the book of Judges is that occasionally somebody would rise to the occasion as a leader for that time and that moment, and they would operate as a judge. A judge sets justice in order, declares what's right and what's wrong. Um, everybody kind of submits to the authority of a judge, even in today's sort of setting, and says, okay, you kind of interpret it and we'll do with whatever you say. In that sense, judges would rise up, they would quell some sort of invasion, they would solve some sort of problem, and then they would fade off into the distance until the next judge would come up. And interestingly enough, in the Old Testament, some of these judges would be men and women. Um, and in the, this is the end of this time period, though. So the story that we're going to read is the end of the judges have come, they've kind of done their thing, and now they're realizing this is kind of a summation of kind of what's wrong with this sort of system uh, to be done. Interesting enough, too, uh, this comes at the end of a book. Um, so Judges 19 through 21, the last three chapters, there are no names given with this. It's only where they're from. It's almost as if it's to be read as sort of an appendix, sort of a statement of the times, sort of a this is how life was like at this point in this era. Uh, in Judges uh, chapter uh, 19, I'll start um, with, uh, with this. It's going to be verse 1 through 21. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Concubine was like a second wife who didn't have all the authority of the primary wife. Um, they kind of uh, uh, took this sort of... Um, ideal from kind of external nations. And they said, well, the important thing is raising up enough kids, making sure you have male heritage to kind of let your family name go on. So in case, just in case as a security measure, if your real wife doesn't give you a firstborn son, then take a bunch of second wives and, and then make sure that this thing happens. So that's, that's concubine. I know the fourth graders in the room were kind of like, what, what, what is that? So I'm following up with that. I do realize this is a very unique story to read while kids are in the rooms. And I apologize for that, parents. This might be a tough week to do this. Or if you're watching from home, maybe have them go watch Bluey or something in the other room for a little bit. That'd probably be a better scenario, but whatever. Um, 
But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her father's house in Bethlehem. She cheated on him, felt bad about it, or didn't want to deal with the consequences, and went home to her dad in Bethlehem of Judah. After she'd been there for four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her father's house, and uh, when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, prevailed upon him to stay. Uh, so he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. The father-in-law is probably trying to cover his own bases. His daughter did this terrible cheating thing, and there's money involved with dowries and all kinds of stuff that could bring shame to the family. So he's trying to butter this son-in-law up. Come on, let's eat together. Let's, let's feast. Let's make these things kind of go away just by ignoring them in this way. On the fourth day, they got up early and prepared to leave, but the girl's father said to his son-in-law, refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. Just one more meal. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterward, the girl's father said, please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. You've, it's been such a rough day. Look, it's already dark out. It's 4 o'clock. You really want to hit the road at 4 o'clock? I hear the pass is bad this week. Why not just stay a few nights, right? <clears throat> when the man uh, got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed there another night. On the morning of the fifth day, finally on the fifth day, he was meant to stay for one day to come pick up his, his, uh, his wife, and, and he ended up staying five days. When he rose to go, the girl's father said, refresh yourself, wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. He just can't pass up a free meal. Can't blame him there on that, right? Who, who can blame him for that? Then when the man, verse 9, with his concubine and his servant got up to leave, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said, now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is almost over. Stay enjoy yourself, blah, blah, blah. But unwilling to stay another night, finally he'd had enough. Five nights is, is good. The man left and went towards Jabus, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. Uh, and, and then it, it says, so he, he got this, he finally got out of this house and he, and, and he left and he goes to these different areas and, and he's, um, he, he refuses to spend the night. He left after eating and, and so they're not going to make it all the way back. So he's got to find a place to stay. And he comes up to this foreign land and, and, the, and, the, and some of his servants are like, we should just stay here for the night. He's like, no, 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 we're going to go to, uh, to Israel. We're going to go to our own jurisdiction. We're going to go. We're not going to stay in Idaho. We're going to Washington. We're making this thing happen, right? We refuse to do this. They go there. Uh, and then in verse, uh, in verse uh, 20, it shows this story of him sitting in the town square waiting for somebody to invite them in. Uh, to, to have a shelter, to, to kind of stay at a place for the night, and nobody's doing it. And he's been out there for a while, and he's starting to get frustrated because everybody's supposed to take care. It's common law of hospitality. When you see somebody in need, you offer them up as a, as a kind of a brotherhood of a nation sort of thing. Like, we take care of each other, right? And nobody's doing this. Finally, this old man who comes in from the fields, who's tired uh, from all of this and, and seeing this, uh, here's this story of this person who's trying to find a place to stay and nobody's taking him in. And he says, fine, you should come to my house. You're welcome at my house. Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and he fed his donkeys. And after that, they washed their feet. They had something to eat uh, and to drink. And then the story goes on with this. He brings him into his house. Um, and what happens is these uh, these people come along, these men of the town uh, come and knock on the door and are angry about... Um, the inhospitability, they are, they're angry about foreigners. He's not from here. Um, and, and so it, it, they get, begin to get aggressive in this way. There's conflict in Gibeah as, as kind of, is the kind of phrase I, I read. And I, I feel bad. I, I wanted to kind of read through this a little bit, but I did recognize that there are some kids going to be in the audience. So I'm going to encourage you to read through this on your own time. But suffice it to say, there are some men who want to do some very uh, awful things to this 
person who has come in, who's an outsider. And this, uh, this father-in-law says, no, no, or this, sorry, this, uh, this homeowner says, no, 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 no. Instead, here, take my daughter, do what you want to do to these men, but do it to my daughter and to his concubine, and then we'll call it good, right? And this is going to be fine. And you can talk about how that's like, you know, not, not appropriate or not whatever, and ob- obviously it's a, it's a unique thing. Um, then he wakes up the next morning and finds a dead body on his front doorstep. It's this man's concubine. Um, she was abused throughout the night, and, uh, and it turns out to be this awful, awful story. And he, he says to her, come on, get up, and we need to leave, and she doesn't move. And so he throws her body onto his donkey and then heads home uh, and then proceeds to um, send a message um, to the rest of the world using body parts to be like, can you believe this happened? This happened even though I'm a, like, I myself am a part of this tribe. Can you believe how people are acting in response to this? This is very aggressive. He sends a, a note, a message. Everybody who saw it, verse 30, everybody who saw it said, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Think about it, consider it, and tell us what to do. It's this very aggressive, we're not sure exactly what's taking place here. Um, Something uh, transpired with this, and there's a new moral low in our country. Now, we're so into this political season that we've heard from all sides of this is the new, you know, historical low, this is the new historical low. But if anything like this happened in our community, we would, again, be like, hey, this probably is like national lose, national lose. This is a new historical low. This is what they're going through in this way. In uh, chapter 20, um, then uh, what happens is the, the, the tribal leaders call all the nations together, or, or all of the tribes together, and say, you know what, we're not going to stand for this. We are going to go up against uh, this sort of kind of behavior. We are going to go against this town, and we're going to say, how dare you allow something like this to happen? How dare you uh, be a part of anything uh, sort of like this? Uh, it says, then all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, which is basically saying from you know, Washington to Florida, uh, and from the land of Gilead came together as one and assembled before the Lord at Mizpah. Armed representatives from every single tribe demanding that justice be done. And they begin to take an oath. This, this town that had accomplished this thing was a part of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the tribes there. They said, well, listen, moving forward, as a result of their poor decisions and their behavior, we are going to make an oath among each other that none of our daughters are ever going to marry a Benjamite Ever. When we go and fight them and battle them, this is going to be our thing from, from here in perpetuity. No, nothing's going to happen with this. They gather together. They're, they're riling up all the troops. They're doing all of the things. They begin to have a war. It describes this war and how these Benjamites are outnumbered, and yet they keep fighting back, and they've got this kind of high ground. And, and chapter 20 goes through, if you're into like wars and strategies and stuff like that, you should definitely read that. But um, how eventually they find themselves nearly wiped out. There's only about 400 uh, men, or six, sorry, excuse me, there's 600 men left after this battle and they begin to escape into the hills. And the first day, the tribes are sent a blow, but the second day, the same thing. But then finally, this third day, the tribes succeed and they're able to kind of push them back into the mountains and they're kind of left in their own areas. And then they're almost sitting down after a war and having, like, thinking through the process and what are the ramifications? What are the ramifications of the decisions that we've made as a result of this? And in, in chapter 21, I skipped over entirely chapter 20, but we'll read through 21 almost uh, word for word. The men of Israel had taken an oath at Mizpah. Again, not one of us will give his daughter to a, in marriage to a Benjamite. The people went to Bethel where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. 
O Lord, the God of Israel, they cried, why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? In other words, what happens is, even though this terrible thing has been done, they realized we've almost committed genocide in the name of the Lord. We've completely wiped out a tribe based on just their associations instead of going after maybe specifically a group of people who allowed this to happen. Instead, we've said we're going to punish the people for the sins of the few, and now we feel a little bit guilty about it. What have we done? We've taken out one of our brotherhood tribes because we were offended in this way. Early the next day, the people built an altar and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Israelites asked, who from all of the tribes of Israel has failed to assemble before the Lord? For they had taken a solemn oath that anybody who failed to assemble before the Lord should certainly be put to death. Uh, now the Israelites, verse 6, grieve for their brothers, the Benjamin, uh, Benjaminites. Um, today, one tribe is cut off from Israel. We, we screwed up. We probably messed up. We probably reacted at a 10 when like a 7 was deserved, right? Um, how can we provide wives for those who are left since we've taken an oath by the Lord not to give them in marriage uh, any of our daughters? Then they asked, which one of the tribes of Israel failed to assemble before the Lord of Mizpah? They discovered that nobody from Jabesh Gilead, Jabesh Gilead, had come, from the, uh, come to the camp for the assembly. For when they counted the people, they found that none of the people were from there. In other words, when they called everybody together, one group just decided not to show up for whatever reason, too busy, whatever. And now they're realizing we made a mistake. And what's going to happen is if these men in the countryside have no women, because after they pushed them into the village, they went into the town and basically killed everything that lived. They realize we messed up and there's going to be no future for the Benjamites without any sort of offspring. And how are they going to have offspring if they don't have any women? Dang it, we messed up. We didn't think through everything fully. And we can't give them our daughters to have uh, babies because we made this oath. So they come up with this great plan. Who didn't show up? Let's give them some of their women. <laughs> it's this, this story, you guys... I'm telling you, right now you're going, what Bible are you reading from? I'm telling you, it's your Bible, the one that you bring sometimes. And like, you're like, I read my Bible. And you're like, yeah, but have you read this? This is crazy town. This is like, this would be rated in, this would be like HBO material, right? This is the, this is the MA stuff. That you're like, I just don't, I don't watch it. You do, but you just don't tell anybody that you watch it, right? That's what's happening here. So the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men with instructions to go to Jabesh Gilead to put to sword anybody living there, including the women and children. This is what you're to do, kill every male. They found among them living 400 young women who had never slept with a man, and they took them to the camp at Shiloh. Then the whole assembly sent an offer of peace to the Benjamites at the Rock of Rimen. So they, they have these 600 people living in the shadows somewhere, right, up in the mountains somewhere. And they found 400 virgins... And so they, they, they strike this deal. This is crazy, guys. They strike this deal with these men. Hey, we feel terrible for killing most of your men and all of your women and children and livestock and basically burning down your cities. So here's what we're going to do. We found 400 women to uh, provide you with a chance to have some offspring. Now, I know there's 600 of you, so... May the odds be ever in your favor, right? We're going to have this, we have to figure out how do we deal with all of this. And they, they realize that there's an, an issue in here. <clears throat> and so they say this, um, we can't, verse 18, we can't give them our daughters as wives since we took this oath that cursed be anybody who gives a wife to a Benjamite. But look, here's this creative idea. We can solve this issue of not being able to give up our, our daughters as wives 
And we can solve this issue of there's 600 of them, but only 400 of, uh, of the wives by this idea. There's an annual festival in, uh, of the Lord in Shiloh, north of Bethel, and east of the road that goes to Bethel to Shechem and to the south of Lebanon. Anyway, it doesn't matter. So they instructed the Benjamites saying, go, hide in the vineyards and watch. And when they come out and they join in the dancing, then what you do is rush out from the vineyards and kidnap whichever wife you want. And when their fathers or brothers complain to us, we'll say to them, do us a kindness, or do us a solid, I, I wrote in our, our, our sort of things. Do us a solid by helping them. We did not get them wives during the war, and you're innocent since you did not give your daughters to them. So your daughters are going to get kidnapped. This is the way for them to get women, for us to keep our oath with God that says we'll never give a wife to a Benjamite, but if they steal one of our wives or steal one of our daughters, like, well, you know, do us a solid. We made a mistake. We're coming up for this in this way. So that is what the Benjamites did. Verse 23, while the girls were dancing, each man caught one, carried her off to be his wife. Quite the festival, if I might say it myself. You thought carnival was bad. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled them. And at that time, the Israelites left the place and went home to their tribes and each to his own inheritance, and life went sort of semi-back to normal in this way. This is insane story, and you thought The Bachelorette was bad. You're like, The Bachelorette, so shallow, so whatever. And then the book of Judges ends. That is literally the end of the book of Judges. There's no hero, there's no resolution, and there's no, well, but then God saw something and said, nothing good happens in this way. And uh, confession to you, I've never read this story to my 12-year-old daughter. Like, I encourage her to read the Bible. I have her skip Judges. You know what I mean? We'll get there someday, but I'm just not sure she's ready for this. The last verse of Judges, and by the way, in, the, in, the, in the, the layout of Scripture, it then transitions to Ruth. That's the next book, which is like this really kind book about a really great woman in the Bible after they've been treated so brutally, horribly in this way. Uh, ironic in that layout. But verse 25 of chapter 21, here's, here's the point of the appendix. Why is this story in there? For all of this prior to this, for 19 or 18 chapters, names are used. Samson rose up, Delilah rose up, or, or um, uh, all of these people rose up to be judged. Not Delilah, she was anti-Samson, but all of these people rose up to be judges in this area. But then it, then it goes into this weird sort of tone. And what's the point of the tone? What's the point of not using names? What's the point of a story that if it was part of your national history, you'd probably want it buried you wouldn't want this to come out. You surely wouldn't want it included in what you consider to be holy scriptures. So why is this text, why is this story, why is this narrative in here about this? And I think it's because of verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. That's how they started this section off, by the way. In, their, in, in those days, there's no king in Israel. So everybody did whatever they wanted. And everybody did what was right in their own eyes. You see, maybe you say to me or we say to ourselves or we look at this and go, what's so bad about listening to the still small voice in our head when it comes to kind of operating autonomously? And I, I would say because it's dangerous. It forces people and you know, you become competitive. You see people as competition. You begin to dehumanize people. What happened in this story? They believed in their own selves. They believed in their own autonomy. They did what was right in their own eyes. They listened to the still small voice in their head. And what did they do? They operated out of competition for one another. This is our country. Why are you here? You're a foreigner. You don't belong here, right? They dehumanized 
dehumanized other people. Well, uh, we need offspring, and I know that, that we'll, just, we'll just kidnap them during this time. All of these things begin to take place. It's an illustration that this is what's happening. In the, or another way of reading this or interpreting this. In those days, there was no binding moral consensus. So people just followed their own moral compass, which can sound good in theory, except that it just doesn't work out in humanity. This is the, this is the Old Testament way of saying, be careful Don't just listen in a still small voice. This is the kind of stuff that happens or this kind of comes out with this. Because what's interesting about this story is I believe that everybody in this story thought that what they were doing was, quote unquote, the right thing to do. The right thing to do. The many of Gibeah said, well, we don't like strangers. We don't like people who come over and freeload out of our country and just come in and think that they deserve a space to stay, like that we owe them a free night, like a free hospitality, like that's not good. We don't owe them anything. The Levite probably thought, hey, I feel bad that you, know, you lost your uh, life as a result of this, but if you hadn't run away the first time, this wouldn't have been a spot that you'd find yourself in. The tribes demanded justice. That felt like the right thing to do. The Benjamites thought, this is an internal thing to do. This is about us. Why are all of you taking issue with what we want to do? We feel like this was the right thing for us to do, was to be, have autonomy on our own thing. And Jabesh Gilead, probably, they just thought, when, they, when, when these men come up with this idea, hey, we have this idea, this tribe never showed up. Seems like the right thing to do to punish them. Everybody's operating from a, from a sense of this felt like the right thing to do. And we've all made dumb decisions that have hurt other people because it felt like the right thing to do. And we feel like, as Americans, we want the freedom, the autonomy to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, with whom we want to do it. But because we're civilized... We add one small caveat to that sort of thing, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, right? This is kind of in general how autonomy works in life for us, I think. We think to ourselves or we expect it of other people, you get to do, you get to live your life, you get to do you, man. Uh, Mileage may vary on what you think is important, but you do what you want to do, when you want to do it, with who you want to do it, as long as, because we're civilized, you don't hurt anybody else in the process. And there's a few I just want to highlight. If that's, how, if that's what you believe, that's, I get it. I understand. It's very common in our day and age. I just want to highlight a couple of things to think about, to lodge into our brain as we hear this kind of message being promoted on all of the autonomous you know, ways of doing life in this way. Number one, a big problem of this is only the super rich can afford this because eventually you need a lawyer, right? <laughs> you do what you want when you want, and you can't tell me what to do as long as I don't hurt anybody else. Uh, sooner or later, you have to get an attorney. The only people who preach this are typically the super rich celebrities who write the music and write the movies, and we keep buying it, so they keep writing it, and who can blame them? So um, I get it, but you never hear this sort of thinking being told from a CPS worker to a family who just lost their kids, hey, you get to continue to do what you want when you want to do it and how you want to do it, whatever, as long as you don't hurt anybody. You never hear a parole officer telling people this. You never hear a judge saying this. People who live on the consequence side of the equation know better than to actually believe this is the autonomy that we're looking for that is going to be how we're going to succeed. Number two, historically, this has generally worked out better for men than women. Do what I want to do when I want to do it, however I want to do it. It's typically a, uh, a pro-patriarchy uh, sort of mentality in this way, right? Where this is true, eventually women have become property and profit centers. So it's a very, very, I just, historically speaking, track record, not great, right? And then number three, you can't do what right, what's right in your own eyes without eventually hurting somebody. And eventually, I really do think that somebody is you. 
Eventually, you overstep the bounds. Eventually, you do something. Eventually, somebody becomes competition. And, and, and dehumanization takes all kinds of different forms, and you begin to hurt other people. And when you begin to dehumanize others, what happens is you become dehumanized yourself. You become a product of that thing which you're levering against, against people. Uh, and, and so as a result, you hurt yourself in the process. So I care about you too much to allow you to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it with whoever you want to do it with a small caveat of as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else because I don't want these things for you. I don't want to live in a society that this plays out like it does. And I'm not super rich. <laughs> so I, that's how this, uh, there, there's all kinds of things at play. So what's the alternative then? If, if I was to say to you, okay, we're going to talk about autonomy for a few weeks, but I just want to start the whole thing off by saying if the answer is not listen to the still small voice in your head because it's dangerous. Like, don't do that. There's a better way to do it. What's the alternative? If one could stop seeing the self as the road and the destination or as the author of a story, perhaps we could find much better stories to tell that really truly do tell us who we truly are. And what if the still small voice isn't the most reliable source, but there could be perhaps some other piece of it, as in living in community with other people who can speak into this, as in submitting ourselves to authorities who we trust, who we've given the gift of uh, sort of uh, governance over us or thoughts about us. What if autonomy was not all it's cracked up to be? What if there was a better version of autonomy? So that's what we're going to talk about for the next two weeks. I just wanted to start today off by saying, listen, if you go through life thinking, I just going to, my next right step is to listen to what's right in my heart. At least scripture would say that is a very dangerous path to go on. And I think if you really think about it yourself and know people who have lived that sort of pattern of lifestyle and you talk to them, you would say even in your own sense of hearing their stories, I don't want to end up like that. I don't know what the alternative is, and, I'm, and I live in a culture that is, is definitely trying to sink into me, do what you want, when you want, with whoever you want, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. And I just want to, have, I want to offer, and I want to be a voice that offers an alternative to that that perhaps is a little bit better. So that's why I want you to come back for the next couple of weeks and join us uh, for my next Right Step. All right?